This is the Aider and a Better podcast with Avi Singh and Sajid Khan. What up, Sajid? Hello, Avi. On today's episode, Sajid and I are going to take a visit to New York, the concrete jungle where dreams are made of, to talk about two subjects. In our opening statement, we talk about the Raise the Age movement, which seeks to treat kids as kids in the criminal justice system. And in our deep dive, we talk about the jail on Rikers Island, the number of jails, actually, and the efforts to close those jails in light of a recent report in our last segment, we do our things. Sajid, why don't you get us started by telling us about what the Raise the Age movement is? Yeah, so this is our New York-themed episode, and I was surprised to learn that New York treats offenders that are 16 years of age and older, so that age range of 16 to 18, rather than charging those young people in juvenile court, they charge those people as adults, as a default. So when you're in New York, if you commit a crime at the age of 16, you're treated as an adult. Yeah, which is uh, so foreign to what we do here in California. As we know, the age for being prosecuted as an adult in California is 18. There were provisions that permitted DA's offices to unilaterally charge those under the age of 18 as adults, but only for certain crimes. And that has been peeled back to a large degree by Prop 57, which was a huge victory in the state of California. But New York, of all places, has been stuck in this framework that I didn't even realize that they were they were continuing to operate in. We're holding New York to a different standard, maybe unfairly, but you know there there's some assumptions about that they wouldn't have a criminal justice system that treats kids so wrongly, right? Yeah. That that is that is so backwards. Right. You you think of New York and New York City in particular as this epicenter of culture and the pro- greatest city in the world. Right. Progressivism. The Big and, Apple. And just forward thinking and and um, but then you hear that they not only permit but mandate that 16 and 17 year olds be prosecuted as adults even for petty crimes including Uh, misdemeanor offenses right including financial crimes not crimes of violence yeah i mean at least here in, in california for example before prop 57 even when prosecutors had the unilateral ability to charge minors as adults, they only were permitted to do so for particular classes of crimes, which typically were serious and violent crimes. But here we're talking about a a framework and a, a structure where if you're 16 years old and you're charged with a vandalism in New York City, you're being prosecuted as an adult and you are being subject to adult consequences without any discretion or ability to peel that back. And the reason we're saying this doesn't make any sense is every study of young people shows that their brains operate differently than people who are older. People when they're young are constitutionally different from the standpoint of cruel and unusual punishment, from the standpoint of how they ought to be treated. Because if we're going to punish them like adults, even though their brains function differently than adults, then we've got a problem. And every study of how kids' brains function indicate that their brains are developing, yeah. you know, and that they're, you know, everything you would connect to, well, what, why is this person more responsible or less responsible? How did their decision-making work? Kids are different. You know, it's not just that they're small adults. So the uh, Raise the Age campaign uh, is focused in New York on the differences between kids and adults. And what they're trying to do is just get up to the, the baseline of the rest of the country everywhere except for New York and North Carolina are treating 18-year-olds as adults. So when you can vote, right? when you can buy cigarettes in most places, I think that's changing though. Yeah. When you can serve in the military, 
that corresponds to when you can be prosecuted as an adult, right? Even though that's an imperfect line. Yeah, it's an imperfect line. It's just shocking to me that that this is even a movement, that it requires any sort of debate or any sort of discussion. And then it might not happen. Is that is that? I mean, a, you know, there's. I mean, I think that everybody's in in favor, or lots of people are in favor, but there is a debate about whether this is appropriate. We're in this space as a country where you're re- you're referencing these studies, and I think for a long time those types of studies, if they existed, were probably being discussed by people like ourselves, public defenders or people, social workers, things like that. But that that those studies are now being cited by the United States Supreme Court. Yeah. And deciding, like you said, that kids are different, that they are more susceptible to environmental factors, to trauma, that there are things that are beyond their control that impact their decision making, their choices, and their ability to separate right from wrong. And so it's not academics that are saying it. It's not public defenders that are saying it. It's the United States Supreme Court that has said it when they decided that uh, juveniles could no, no longer be subject to the death penalty, when they decided that juveniles can no longer receive mandatory life without the possibility of parole sentences. And so in that context, where the Supreme Court has laid out these decisions, where we see this trend uh, to where um, our highest our highest judiciary is mandating these different standards for, for young people, to, it's just, it's shocking to me that New York has remained in this, in this kind of, dark, in the dark age. Yeah, I mean, if you're just a systems designer, right, you're just going to try to plan how do we treat people who commit criminal offenses? Yeah, Like you have to do some major, uh, you have to really reach for an unreasonable outcome. You, know, you have to really think hard to come up with something so nonsensical as to say all crimes, if you're over 16, we're gonna prosecute you as an adult. Yeah, You have to assume that 16 year olds are adults. You right. have to assume that there's no difference between different types of offenses. You have to assume that there's some reason to not have a provision to get kids into juvenile court. And a lot of this, I think, just is about how things get started. Like if they start in a bad way, sometimes they're sticky, right? Like it's path, it's like friction mm-hmm. or uh, path dependence. Like we set up the system, then therefore we have jails to hold kids, you know, with adults that we'll talk about later. Or we have a court system that's set up for adults that handle 16-year-olds. So if you want to untangle... You know, if you want to un- kind of sort out this mess, you then have to do other things, yeah. and those things are costly, like have a juvenile court that can handle 16, 17, and 18-year-olds, or 16 and 17-year-olds. Yeah, and that's not even to speak of, or you are kind of referencing the idea that when we treat 16, 17-year-olds as adults and we expose them to adult jails or adult consequences, the fact that we are likely just further entrenching them in those behaviors and in those lifestyles and then the long-term costs that come associated with that as a society in terms of having to essentially raise these young people because we've taken them on as wards when we jail them and when we prosecute them that way. Um, And then you also referenced earlier, Avi, about the the standards that we have in place in this country, uh, 16 being the the age to drive in many places, but now that's even been 
peeled back in a lot of ways. When you and I were growing up, we could get our license at 16 without any restriction. Now yeah. there's all kinds of restrictions in place in terms of who can a 16-year-old can drive in their car, when and where they can drive, and how late, and things like that. And then you talked about voting. We only allow people to vote at the age of 18, buy cigarettes at 18. Is it 21 now in California? I think it's changed, but buy these alcohol. changes don't affect us Right, we're over the age. We're over the yeah. age, but the, the point yeah. is we have generally said based on these laws that are in place we we have said that we don't trust young people uh, with these important decision making processes we don't trust them to make the right decisions when they're driving we don't make we don't trust them to make the right decision to vote we don't trust them to drink alcohol and make appropriate decisions when they're drinking because we we want to wait till they're 21 before they could do that but then we have this arbitrary and hypocritical alternative when it comes to the criminal justice system where a 16-year-old in New York or in California under previous law and even under current law can be prosecuted as an adult where we have we are saying we don't trust them to vote but we believe that they have the mental capacity and the threshold to commit adult crimes yeah and um, to make decisions being in adult court with the consequences that come in adult court requires really hard decision making yeah so when I was when I was uh, 16, I failed the driver's license test. Oh yeah. Yeah, I failed it. How many times? Uh, one time. One time. I made a right turn on a red arrow, or red light, because I wanted to show I knew the rule. Uh, it, but a car, you know, it wasn't a safe turn, and so I was failed immediately. And I had to wait two weeks to test again. And those were the two longest weeks <laughs> of my life. Right. I remember like time moving so slowly. Yeah. For those two weeks, just so I could get my license. Now that's so trivial. But my sense of time was was warped. Yeah. Right. Two weeks felt like forever. You had no view of two years from then, like or twenty years from then. If I'm in a juvenile, if I'm in an adult criminal system, and I'm being offered, you know, two months county jail followed by two months of rehabilitative training, uh, and no serious or violent felonies, no strike offenses. Right. Or get out right away with a strike. Right. My my long-term thinking is different it was different you know that that 16 year old who failed his driving test would have done anything to take the driving test the next day right right anything yeah you have no, no matter how no arbitrary or harmful yeah uh, right. you know it, it it's so you know the complicated decisions that we advise our clients about every day do you take this deal do you go to trial do you testify yeah what kind of moves do you make do you make different offers it's really complicated and to put a 16-year-old into that system is just dangerous. Yeah. You know, and on a, like a shoplifting. Right, right. And that's not even to speak of the, from a kind of a moral lens or from a societal lens as to, so there's the decision-making and their ability to make those meaningful, those decisions in a meaningful, thoughtful way. But then there's also the lens of it in terms of how we as a society um, want to assess or dole out um, justice for 16 yeah. year olds, how responsible we want to hold them. And we know, especially in our, at least I think we know in terms of our line of work and what we see from our clients, uh, how much is beyond their control, uh, how little choice that our clients often have in terms of where they were born, who they were born to, 
where they're being raised, what schools that they go to, dysfunction in their family environments, mm -hmm. how they have the inability to extricate themselves from po from poverty or from violence in the home. Yeah. You know, I have clients that tell me, oh, you know, I made the choice to, to, to join a gang. I made that choice, you know, or I... Uh, or I, I made the choice to live this life. And then I, I start to challenge them not to let them off the hook, not to say, oh, you didn't have that choice. But I'll say, yeah, you had a choice, but your choices were limited or your, your, your alternatives were relatively limited because of where you were raised, because of who you were born to, because of what was going on around you. Well, even, I mean, and the Supreme Court in Miller versus Alabama yeah. agrees that, that, you know, even if you accept uh, some sort of pick yourself up by your bootstraps, right. you know, you've turned 18, yeah. go forth and, you right. know, succeed or yeah. fail, you know, based on just your own character and, right. you know, the strength of your will or whatever. In uh, this Miller versus Alabama, which is one of the big Eighth Amendment cases about how to treat kids, you know, and how kids are different than adults, they they talk about the fact that if you're, if you're a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, it's kind of difficult to just say, well, okay, I'm going to go make my own way now. Right. I'm going to leave. You know, I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go, you know, find a better situation. Right. You are tied uh, based on, you know, just the fact of your life and your age and where you are in life to a certain type of situation that is hard to remove yourself from. Yeah. And so if a person's in that circumstance and they wind up committing a crime with an adult, right, if, they're, if their older brother, right, or if their uncle or aunt you know, gets them involved in some sort of caper, right, that they go along with, they're treated differently, yeah. you know, because they can't just say, okay, sorry, you know, dad, Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go get, you know, a, a stick and a sack and go hop on a train. It, it doesn't work that it's way. It's almost like a form of, of uh, if you think about it from a legal kind of defense perspective, it's like almost a form of duress, you know, like, a, or, it's like yeah, duress these, and necessity, these yeah. pressures that are coming down on them and it requires a certain fortitude and 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 assistance to be able to fight those pressures back but yeah. we're, we're not all equipped to to do that I and mean, we're not all equipped to do it when we're 16 definitely not and i mean you, you talk about when there's a will there's a way i mean that's the mantra that my mom raised me with and and i appreciated that but i've, I've called that into question a bit my mom grew up in a lot of, in poverty in india and she definitely exhibited, you know, strong will to get to where she is now, to be here, to be educated. And then she emphasized that with me growing up. But then interacting with our clients, uh, I do agree when there's a will, there is a way to a degree. But it, it's there is so much more than just will it, that that takes place in our clients' lives. And so it's not as simple as you made the wrong choice. Because uh, as I just noted, sometimes our clients don't have the options that most of us had that might have been growing up in some sort of privilege or they don't even have the mental capacity or the wherewithal or the guidance to to make the appropriate choices but another thought that i had is this so with that in mind these studies that we're referencing so many of these studies about the frontal lobe and the decision making processes indicate that those um, formations aren't really getting solidified until the age is of 23 25 even and so it's interesting that new york is at 16 and from my vantage point i think some in the literature that we're describing would probably argue that we should be moving the age up to 21 to 23 or even to 25 and yeah. that anything below those numbers should be treated in a different way and in fact california has recognized that to a degree with youthful offender parole yeah where they are recognizing 
um, which is a really inspired, which is really great. They're recognizing that young people who have committed serious crimes that are going to subject them to life sentences or sentences above 15 years will that have committed crimes when they were 23 or younger will receive consideration for parole when they previously wouldn't have uh, after they've served a certain period of time, I think 15 or 20 years in custody, depending on the on the offense. And so California has recognized that and put it into their laws. Yeah. And so I think the next step of this movement is not to raise 16 to 18, but it's to eliminate direct files, but eliminate the prosecution of young people as adults, regardless of what they've been accused of. And the next step is reassessing this age of 18. That Where does that come from? Yeah. Where does 18 come from? Do you know? I, I don't know the actual story of how we got here. Yeah. But it seems that 18 makes sense based on all the other places where 18 is anchored right. as an age. Right. Uh, it's, it's weird because the... Uh, oh, so just for reference, Penal Code 3051 in California is the youthful offender parole provisions. Yeah. And it directs the Board of Parole Hearings to consider factors attendant to youth for people who are under 23 when they commit their crimes and they get a sooner parole date right. because of the fact that they were under 23 than they otherwise would get. So this is like exactly where I think people who are concerned, you know, once this fight is won, you know, I hope it is won in New York about the age of 18, that the next fight would be about people who are incarcerated thinking about who they were at the time when they committed their offense, yeah. thinking about their youth. And 23 is the current age in California. Yeah. What I mean, but that's based on the science, and the science could take us up to 25. Right. You know, if we're thinking about where to draw these lines. Yeah, and so I think I think the where I'm kind of arriving at as we as we talk this out, even in this podcast, is just reassessing some of these these standards that we've come to accept, or these normatives that we've come to accept, and really questioning their their the premise behind them, the information behind them, and then um, asking ourselves as a community what is the kind of legitimacy behind the age of 18 being our threshold number and why not 23 why not 25 but i think from in my mind that's where the, that's where we should be headed 16 definitely is just asinine but um, 18 at the at the very least and then moving it up to 23 25 as we as this science continues to develop and as we as it becomes more accepted in the in the mainstream there are some uh, just troubling statistics that i thought i would put out here if people are thinking about this raise the age thing and not just let's treat new york like other places but what actual harm is going on so how many people are we talking about about twenty eight thousand people who are 16 and 17 years old are arrested and could be prosecuted in adult court in new york in new york of over 70 percent of the 16 and 17 year olds arrested are black or latino which isn't going to correspond to their representation in the community of 16 and 17 year olds once you're in an adult system you wind up getting treated like an adult in certain ways so if you're putting a kid in adult court maybe you're going to use tools that you use on adults like solitary confinement which are really damaging to everybody but more damaging to kids kids are 36 times more likely to commit suicide in an adult facility than in a juvenile facility. Kids in adult prisons face the highest risk of sexual assault of all inmates, right? So, you know, there's kind of the principled part of this that we want things to be fair and just, and then there's just the harm. I mean, the, the harm that this is carrying out and it's in our it's in our names. This is our criminal justice system and it's gonna be as good or as bad as we make it. Uh, and uh, we encourage, uh, you know, we stand with the Raise the Age campaign. I yeah, think they're, we're the haters. We are haters and abettors, and we endorse the campaign. We hope that it passes, right? Yeah. And uh, 
So I think what we should do is take a quick break, and when we come back, do our deep dive. Let's do it. All set. This week's deep dive is about Rikers Island. Sajid, can you get us started by telling us what is what is Rikers Island? Rikers Island is a island uh, in the LaGuardia Airport area of New York City, and it serves as a jail complex for the city. And there are ten jails on that island. Uh, I always thought there was just one. There was just one massive yeah, Rikers I thought that, jail. I thought that too. But we now know that there are ten jails on that island, and it essentially serves as the jail facility for the city of New York. And it includes holding facilities for those that are waiting for adjudication of their crimes. So those that are have been accused of crimes that are being held on bail or without bail. Who haven't been convicted have yet. Have been convicted or those that have been convicted and are serving particular types of sentences uh, that uh, permit them to stay in jail as opposed to uh, being sent off to some prison facility. Rikers has always been in the news and in pop culture. Most recently, we many of us probably saw it in the night of the, the HBO miniseries uh, where the young Muslim South Asian male was accused of murder and sent to Rikers as his case was being adjudicated in the in the court system, and uh, and we saw visuals of Rikers in that show the bus ride across a bridge to the island the the gates of that facility being opened, him being transported into the facility, being searched and being assessed and then being ass- uh, being assigned to a bunk and uh, the you know the different players in the jail including the guards and the other inmates and things like that. And so so for those that saw that show that that was a, I think a pretty commonly accepted depiction in a you know in many ways of of what Rikers is. Yeah, Rikers has had been investigated or there've been incidents there. There's high higher than in other prisons levels of violence at Rikers Island you know there's slashings incidents with weapons that are captured in the night of there was an officer who was a correctional officer who was terminated prosecuted and convicted for killing an inmate during an act of kind of physical violence there are instances of corrupt staff or in- interactions between cor- uh, the correctional staff and or some members of it and uh inmates in terms of relationships mm-hmm. uh, that are also captured in the night of so it's yeah. like it's almost as if the writers of the night of just kind of did a search of you know bad things that happened at Rikers and and found all of these incidents have some moment in the last few years yeah it's, uh, I mean no one has come out to say no one on the other side of having watched the night of and has come out and said that's not what happens at Rikers you know that's not accurate it's you know it's it's like I said it's almost become commonly accepted as what are some of the realities of what goes on in that facility but who knows in we've talked about the closing before but in the closing argument the the client has gone from this tutor you know a basketball team tutor who's reserved and and respectful to those around him to someone who's addicted to drugs who's hardened who's got tattoos and shaved shaved his his head head, who's put on all kinds of muscle Right. and is now a different person and the attorney attributes it to survival at Rikers you know he right. talks about it in his closing well you talk about survival i mean that's the, the other reason why many of us know about Rikers is Khalif Browder yeah it's such a tragic story of a young person we talked about raise the age he was a young person charged he's at the with, intersection of all kinds charged of injustice with yeah. a robbery as a juvenile of a backpack um, who's sent to Rikers is stays there for 
days on end as his case is adjudicated. Ultimately, his case is dismissed, but his Rikers experience so scarred and traumatized him. And there's video that's been released of his experience there where he's being assaulted by correctional officers, where he's having to fend for himself with other inmates because he's small and he's young. And then ultimately he's released back in the community, but his uh, scarring and his trauma is so deep in him that he's not able to recover and he ultimately committed suicide without many exceptions, people attribute his suicide to the trauma inflicted upon him by Rikers and those responsible for Rikers and those that run Rikers. So, you know, that's Khalif Browder is an, is kind of the become the poster child for all that's wrong uh, with um, Rikers Island and all that. And Rikers Island, I think, as we have this discussion, is really a uh, shining, not shining, it's a dark symbol for our system of incarceration in many ways. Because when we talk about Rikers, we're not that far removed from it in San Jose. I mean, in terms of our jail facilities, you and I go to these jail facilities often. We visit our clients there. In fact, there's a trial going on right now in our courthouse where three uh, correctional officers are being uh, tried for murder of of an inmate. And And then I talk to clients that are engaged in hunger strikes on a regular basis at the jail here in an effort to get basic human humanity and dignity like improve their conditions improve their conditions get more access to outdoors time uh, get more clothes yeah i had a client tell me that he has to sleep in the same clothes that he works out in so he has to he's he's because he only gets a limited amount of clothes so he sweats in these clothes and he has to sleep in these clothes he only gets to go out outside at random hours of the night, his food is ridden with, it's almost like a cliche, his food is ridden with like bugs and maggots. It, and it's its not uncommon for people to gain a lot of weight while they're in there because of the diet that they have and the trade-offs they have to make in terms of when am I going to exercise? Yeah. What am I going to have to do if I exercise? The commissary that my client has access to, the stuff that he can buy is yep. all junk food. So th- these these things that... And, and quickly, someone will hear this and say, too bad. Yeah. Too bad, so sad, right? He shouldn't have committed whatever offense he's charged with committing. Right. And the response that we have that's assumed here is that when we take people in and when we hold them as part of our criminal justice system, the way they are treated puts us on the line. The way we treat people that we are holding matters. Right. Yeah, if, we, I mean, if we put them into a situation that is abusive, we are doing that. You know, stipulating. I'm going to stipulate that this, you know, the vast majority of these people... You know, the ninety percent of these cases, these people with cases, will resolve their cases by a plea bargain. Uh, so stipulating to that, how we treat people that we're holding, whether they're exposed to violence, you know, that is from correctional staff or based on ignoring the safety in the jail, that's a problem that we're we're assuming for our conversation. Yeah, well, it matters for a couple of reasons, Avi. I mean, yeah. it matters just from a. I think for us, or at least for me, and I think I can speak for you too is it matters from a just a very basic human perspective that we remember that these are our fellow human beings. They're our brothers or sisters. And my, many times, most people don't feel it or recognize it until one of their own family members is incarcerated and it has to go through it. And most of us don't have family members that have gone through it. 
Um, so I'm, I think that we have a unique opportunity in this podcast and through our work to be able to share these stories so that people can get a glimpse of, of, of the fact that there are human beings in these facilities that require and deserve to be treated humanely. So there's that kind of moral imperative that we have to, to treat people with dignity, even if they've committed serious crimes and done things that we're, we don't condone. But then there's also the societal perspective of what are we doing to make our society safer? Yeah. Like in terms of our long view. So even if you don't believe that these people deserve humanity. What and, kind of outcome are we trying to get in terms yeah. of their ability to thrive when they get out? Right. And, yeah. and, and in terms of our public safety. Yeah. And so, you know, the night of is a perfect example because here you had that this young man who was a contributing member to the community whether he committed the crime or not is actually left ambiguous in the show but ultimately he's out and ultimately many of our clients will get out the majority of them will get out and when they get out what will the impact of the jail be on upon them when they get out will yeah. they be scarred and traumatized like Khalif Browder will they be further entrenched in the in criminality and violence like a Riz in the show will they be drug addicted when they weren't drug addicted before yeah. um, you know when they get out or are, we, are they going to be coming out with tools and rehabilitated and with insight and with uh, remorse and motivation and drive to contribute and to be better? Arguably, and I, I, I think you'd agree, is that Rikers or our jails here, even in Santa Clara County, are not doing that. They're processing our fellow human beings, and then ultimately many of them are coming out worse off than they went in in terms of their addictions in terms of their decision-making processes in terms of their entrenchment and criminality and i i think i agree that that's descriptively accurate in terms of you know outcomes i think that the system isn't working and i think that the good news is that there is a recognition a recent recognition in the last seven years you know it, it hasn't been a 10 year plus recognition that the system just judging our system based on its outcomes separating the kind of concerns for dignity, you know, concerns for basic human protections. Yeah. Uh, but just outcomes-based, this system isn't working, right. that we have a revolving door, and that there have been the creation of certain things, like a focus on rehabilitation and parole decisions, like reentry services on non-serious, non-violent felonies that get people, when they come out, some place to go where they can get situated in programming. So there has been a recognition locally, very locally here where we work. And in the context of Rikers, there's been a recognition with this uh, commission report. So a commission was formed to study Rikers Island. It was formed by the president of the city council, uh, and uh, the head of the commission was the former chief judge of courts in New York. And they issued a report last week calling for the closure of Rikers. And in a way, it's this is a, a call for lots of changes to right. the criminal justice system. It's, it's like an indictment of many of the problems with our criminal justice system. And Rikers is the focal point of it, yeah. right? Because Rikers... It's like a catch-all. It, it's, it stands for something, right? Yeah. It actually represents, for example, you know, we have our uh, main jail in where we work in San Jose. It's right next to the courthouse, right? It's in, it's in the community where the court is. Right. Uh, in the context of Rikers, you take all of the jails and put them onto an island, right? And then a literal island. <laughs> and and the courts are spread out. You know, there's district courts in the Bronx, and there's courts in Brooklyn, and there's 
you know, courts and queens, and all of the people are being held on this island, which creates a separation from the communities where these crimes are occurring, where the witnesses are, where the families are. Right. Uh, and that creates these separations and isolation. Mm-hmm. That is a bad thing. So, you know, closing Rikers and having the jails all set up in different places, you know, like having a jail next to the courthouse in the Bronx, can eliminate some of that isolation and bring the people closer to the communities, even when they're being held right. uh, for their offenses. But this report is so much more than, uh, you know, it's calling for so much more than just the elimination of a jail or closing a jail. They're talking about reducing the jail population by half annually. So right now, Rikers holds about 10,000 people per year. And how do we get it so that it's half of that? Because there's this idea that more jail does not mean more public safety. Right. You know, and so what are we thinking? If we start thinking about how do we get better outcomes, this thing that exists, this big island filled with 10 jails and 10,000 people per year isn't getting us the right outcomes. Right. So let's cut it in half and let's do things like let's connect people with mental health services earlier. Let's divert cases that are low level cases. If somebody's caught with some methamphetamine or some weed, instead of taking them to a jail on an island, Let's maybe connect them with a service, and if they succeed, not charge them with a crime. You know, are we worse off if that's the approach we take? And let's look at the bail system. Bail, yeah. It, the, the reporting knowledge is that if you are poor and innocent, right, it's, it's, you are in a bad position because you're going to be held with a bail, you won't be able to pay it, and you'll possess the keys to your release if you just plead. Right. If you just plead guilty, you can get out. And that system turns kind of our ideas about how the justice system works on its head. Rikers, it's a catch-all that, that implicates so many of these topics. And one of the things with bail is that the number of people that are being held at Rikers that haven't been convicted of anything. And then like Khalif Browder, who ultimately had his case dismissed, he wasn't convicted of a single crime, um, but he experienced the Rikers experience. And then, like you said, the the bail issue. So the bail issue ends up kind of ensnaring many people that tip that don't need to be incarcerated during the pendency of their case, just because they can't afford it. And so that's beyond the. So that that leads to these high numbers and these overcrowding and things like that. So there's just there's people that are in custody that don't need to be in custody, because they can't afford it. But beyond that, there's also the notions of bail in terms of the presumption of innocence and how the yeah. bail system is in large conflict with the presumption of innocence because we presume people innocent despite the fact that they've been arrested and charged with crimes, but then they're being held on bail on an assumption that they've committed the crime or that they're a danger to the community or they're, that they're a flight risk. And, and then because they're in custody, they are having to make decisions that they would not have to make if they were out of custody. What's the price of their freedom yeah. in, that, in that context? So there's implications in terms of just outcomes and the truth of our outcomes that we get in our court processes when people are having to essentially make decisions that are based on their ability to pay or inability to pay. And I mean, that's why this, you know, this is a report, the Commission on Rikers Island. You know, they're looking at how do we address, you know, you're holding 10,000 people. You don't have to hold 10,000 people. Right. Right. They are proposed that people who haven't been convicted, who are awaiting trial, that the default should be that they are released with supervision. You know, that they have a monitor, that they have a caseworker that checks in on them. And here's what they say about money bail. New York should eliminate money bail. A person's freedom should not be determined by what's in his or her wallet. Like, what is the public good that's being advanced by money bail? Like, like 
public safety in a particular case, flight risk in a particular case, but we know that we're keeping many more people in on small offenses that don't implicate public safety where they're going to come back to court. Right. And what is our marginal, what's our advantage of doing that as opposed to just having them report to court? Right. Or giving them a text message to come to court. Yeah, or an ankle monitor. Or an ankle monitor. Or having them check in with a pretrial services uh, agent. And I'm excited to, to, I mean, this report about ending money bail that you just read from, and there are many other movements to end money bail. I think it's happening in California as well. And so I think... The ball is rolling in a real in a real powerful way. One thing I wanted to go back to, if you don't mind, yep. is about the 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 distance. Oh yeah. The yeah. the fact that Rikers was is literally on an island, and that there there is a that it takes so much effort. Some of the articles that I think we read on this topic were about how family members would have to take entire days to go and see uh, a family member that's at the jail. And that essentially would be a huge deterrence to them to be able to stay connected with their loved ones that are in custody. I don't think we can overlook how meaningful or impactful that is. Uh, you know, you remove uh, someone from their from their community, from their family, and you talked about isolation earlier. So not only are you putting them into a jail facility, but then you're both literally and figuratively isolating them from their families. Um, and so that that. And perhaps a family member is able to speak some sense into that person that's being incarcerated or just able to give them some hope or to continue be, to be loving in a difficult time. But then when they don't see that person or they're having to make expensive phone calls, collect calls that, that, that continue to add up, and you disintegrate the, those family connections and those bonds. And so that when that person ultimately is released back in the community, like we talked about earlier, that connectivity has been broken. Yeah. Um, and perhaps irreparably. And, and, then, and then that community, that family is less likely to be an asset to the rest of us, and, or not the rest of us, the community, in terms of ensuring the success of that ex-offender or that person that sat in that jail. Yeah. And so it just has this trickle-down trickle effect. And so I, the, one of the, the counter-proposals to Riker is to, is to take these jail facilities, first of all, reassess the whole operation about who we jail and why we jail, but then if, accepting that we do have to have jails, then where will they be? And like you mentioned earlier, putting them back into the communities so that they, so people can access them and so people, families can see one another and remain connected. And I'm thinking now about fathers and sons or fathers and daughters, especially um, to make sure that those bonds are connected even when someone's incarcerated. And so oh, that yeah. this father that's incarcerated doesn't become a figment of the imagination or doesn't become a monster that's that's locked away. Yeah, and you know what it also does is, well, we've you know there's this thing that we want to do, right? We want to have a criminal justice system that functions, and in part that involves incarceration sometimes. It, but what we've done is we've kind of uh, taken all of the costs, you know, all all the things that that involves of taking a person and putting them into a jail and holding them there while their case proceeds, and we've just put it to the back of our minds. Yeah. We've put it, in, you know, literally on an island, and if it's localized, it's close, right? It's close, and so the idea is about community policing. The idea is about neighborhoods being together and understanding this big issue that we have are kind of resituated, yeah. right? There's something worthwhile about resituating the criminal justice system to the neighborhoods, right? Yeah, um, that's a good point. Yeah, I, you know, there's a. So how much is it going to cost? This committee suggests it'll cost so. It should cost approximately $11 billion, according to this report. 
I think that that you know, of course, there's assumptions about how many cases you can divert, you know, how much you can actually get people out pre-trial. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot that goes into that, but if you wind up cutting your uh, jail population in half uh, each year, you can save over a billion dollars each year. Yeah. You know, so it's going to be a high. It's going to require a lot of courage and determination to actually make it happen. Uh, but hopefully it happens. Yeah, hopefully it happens. One thing I wanted to mention too, we were talking about it before we started recording, is uh, is there there might be someone listening to this who says who cares, especially about the the like we talked about it earlier about the violence uh, or the 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 violent nature of Rikers or how unsafe it is for the person that's being sent there or the level of violence that they're going to be subject to, whether it be sexual violence or physical violence or both. And we, you were telling me how there you 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 know, when you look on Facebook or on a, on a comment section of uh, someone accused of rape or accused of child molest, and then you see uh, in the comment section, you know, this guy's going to get raped when he gets to prison, you know, or he, you know, he's going to have it coming to him when he gets there. It's, it's like a pretty regular refrain. It's like the second comment, right. you know, on a, on a crime story. So if somebody posts a crime story, right. comment one is like, oh, that's too bad. And then comment two is... Look what's waiting for him. Yeah, I guess, you know, they'll take care of him soon yeah, they'll take, yeah. And and it goes to this this presentation that we talked about. I think we both attended here in at a training training last week, where a gentleman was presenting about a variety of different topics. But one of the things he talked about was our methods and means of incarceration. And he said he said something to the effect I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, if we just wanted to remove people from our communities because they've committed crimes or because they're dangerous to our to us as a us as a population. We could do so. We could put people out into the country, build a facility, a lock facility, keep them there, let them, you know, run the fields or, uh, you know, play music or do whatever it might be and, and, and achieve the purpose of incapacitating them from committing crimes or holding them uh, for what they've done. The timeout function. Right, the timeout function. Um, but he said, we don't do that. We don't do that because we have a communal interest and a communal thirst for retribution, for like the pound of flesh. Not only do we want to lock people away, we want to hurt them. We want to inflict pain on them. And it's this, I don't know where that comes from. Um, And we were talking about kind of, we were having a bewildered um, conversation about where that premise comes from, but it's so true. And so so I think what the, the point I'm getting at is that when we, if if and when Rikers closes, it will it will be a pushback against that kind of instinct that so many of us have about inflicting pain on quote unquote criminals or those that have committed crimes in our communities and having that pound of flesh or retribution, and we'll we'll say it's a message, a symbolic message saying we're not going to do it that way anymore. We're reassessing how we do this whole thing, and so when Rikers closes. It's a, a restart for not only the city of New York, but for arguably for the whole country, because New York, like we talked about as we kicked off this podcast, is how how meaningful and how kind of at the epicenter of our culture New York City is. So if Rikers closes, maybe it has this trickle impact on the rest of the of the country and saying, we're going to do things differently. We're not about retribution. We're about making smart, efficient, just decisions on criminal justice, not decisions based and our thirst for a pound of flesh or our, 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 our belief that incarceration is our answer. I think if you take a close look at how our system's actually functioning, you come away 
feeling like this system isn't working. Yeah. And so anything that triggers uh, more experimentation, more different approaches to see how they work, those are always going to be hard to do because of that instinct that we have, right? That's always going to be a speed bump or a roadblock. You know, uh, how, how severe it is will depend on each locality. But if we can be mindful of what's motivating us and what's making us think this shouldn't work or that should work, we have to connect that to outcomes. Yeah. Uh, link that up to, is this system, right now the system works as poorly as a system can work to deliver any service. So can we do better? Yeah. And so if Rikers closes and they do better in certain jails, you know, they have 10 jails on different places that function differently and that creates more laboratories, yeah. you know, for experimentation and rehabilitation and in deterrence or, you know, it, for what that's worth, you know, we can look at it. Yeah, and and originally I was like, Rikers doesn't mean anything to me because it's in New York, but it, now that I've read these materials and we've had this conversation and we've talked about it, it means a lot to us sitting here in San Jose or in in California or to the person in dealing with criminal justice in North Carolina or Texas or Florida because it can it can be the it could be the first domino to fall and to to effectuate kind of this ripple. Uh, ripple effect across the country. Um, so let's see how it shakes out. We're rooting for you, New York. Yeah. We're glad that the Aider Nation could come, do a quick visit, see how you operate, and and we're we're rooting for you. Except for we're operate we're recording in, in from San our Jose. lab. Yeah, but uh, but we we are yeah we took our virtual tour and uh, and you know so uh, again just to follow up there's the Rikers Island Committee report maybe we can put that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, we've got the Raise the Age campaign, and uh, I think our tour, uh, we should end our deep dive in uh, the Big Apple. Why don't we take a break? Uh, when we come back, we will do our things. All set. This is episode six of the Ader Nation, Ader and a Better podcast. Uh, why don't you go first? What's your thing? I have two things. The first is... A sports take. Uh, the Warriors clinched the number one seed uh, last night for the third year in a row. The number one seed in the Western Conference. The Warriors have won uh, 13 in a row. And that came on the heels of, uh, I think, where they had lost four of six after Kevin Durant got injured. And uh, everyone is questioning whether this was going to be the, the, the fall of the Warriors' empire. They, they took a rest day in San Antonio. And then since then, they've won 13 in a row. And Steph Curry has has led them uh, without Kevin Durant and has kind of re-entered the fray in terms of him being uh, an elite player um, in the NBA. So my thought is that uh, in, in doing so, he beat the Spurs on the road, or they beat the Spurs on the road, the Rockets twice, the Wizards, the Grizzlies, the Thunder. And um, so my, my one thing is that these, these 13 games, to me, have merited Steph Curry being MVP again. He won the MVP two years in a row. No. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you can't I, be say, you can't be serious. I'm serious. I mean, You're doing he, it. I'm doing it. He's he's on the best team in the NBA. There there was this crossroads in the season where they could have fallen back to a number two seed yep. and kind of um, – because and it, it, they would have a built-in excuse because Durant was is hurt. Um, but they haven't done that. Instead, they've ripped off 13 in a row. Steph is leading them at the most crucial time of the year 
and they've supplanted themselves again, or they've implanted themselves back at the top of the Western Conference, and he's been the one at the head of the ship. And uh, and then in the, in the process, he's beaten all these MVP contenders. He beat Kawhi Leonard on the road. He beat James Harden twice, both in Houston and in Oakland. He beat Russell Westbrook in, in uh, Oklahoma City, beat John Wall. I mean, uh, all these, all these yeah. all-stars that were kind of being put in front of him, he just has knocked them down one by one. And so I know it's a, it's a homer take because obviously I'm a huge Warriors fan, but it, it's just it's, it's, my, it's my thing is that what he has accomplished and what the team has accomplished in these 13 games trumps Russell Westbrook averaging a triple-double because he's on a 49-win team. The Warriors are a 64-win team and trumps James Harden and what he's done because, um, again, I mean, head-to-head, Steph took it to him. Yeah. And so that's my first thing is is uh, I'm trying to get the bandwagon started for a Steph Curry for MVP. Second uh, thing, real quick, is a podcast that I started listening to. So um, it's called X Conversations. It's a um, chaplain in, in the Northeast, I think in Massachusetts, who uh, works in the prison system there and interviews ex-offenders uh, that are now in the community about their childhoods, their experiences in prison, um, their experiences since coming out of prison. I've listened to an episode and a half. I think there's three episodes so far. It's really well produced. It's also on you know, all the platforms. So after you finish listening to all of our episodes, you can then listen to X conversations, um, but never before. <laughs> don't leave us. Yeah. So I, uh, so I, I, no one is. Uh, I don't know the gentleman that's running that X conversations pod, but I, I just have enjoyed the content. And it, we talked about getting close. It really allows the listener to get up close to the experience of someone that kind of um, ends up in the criminal justice system and why they got there and what they're doing since. So those are my things. That's great. My thing is about a memo written from uh, Jeff Sessions, our United States Attorney General. There was a memo issued March 31st, 2017. The subject line is called Supporting Federal, State, Local, and Tribal Law Enforcement. And it's a pretty, it it doesn't really seem like much of a thing. It's just this two-page memo that has a bunch of platitudes about supporting law enforcement and opposing criminal offenders. But what it actually means is the Department of Justice is going to take steps under the direction of Jeff Sessions to withdraw or minimize its involvement in consent decrees. So a consent decree is an agreement overseen by a federal judge, and it could be of a police department or some sort of agency. Uh, When the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, pursuant to a number of federal statutes, uh, investigates a police department and finds that they're are systemic problems with those police departments. They can identify those problems and then enter into agreements with the agencies, with the cities, to resolve them. So there are a number of consent decrees in our country, but not even close to how many police departments there are, right? There's maybe 20 consent decrees and and thousands of police departments. I think they were focused on really on cities with really egregious records of police uh, misconduct and systemic issues of police violence and and racial bias and things like that, like in cities like uh, Ferguson, Missouri, uh, Chicago, Seattle, Baltimore, um, Baltimore, um, and others. Albuquerque. Yeah. Yep. It, it's funny that you mentioned 
this letter you sent me the memo early this week and i read it and like you said it's full of platitudes and kind of these generic statements and i was like can you believe this <laughs> my response is like what am i missing this is just you know par for the course like law you know it's just it's a memo that basically says law enforcement is is great we want to support them there's only a few um you know we don't want uh, a few bad apples to to uh spoil the you know the the lot and things like that um but then as we've exchanged articles through the week and, you, and you've shown me how and why uh, this memo is significant relative to these consent decrees, that was another thing. I didn't know what a consent decree was because uh, it's not something that was taught to us in law school um, I, that I recall, but I have come to learn, as you just described, that there, it's basically a, an, a, a legally enforceable agreement between the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division and these law enforcement agencies for them to uh, make uh, in meaningful uh, change to their policies and procedures um, and standards of law enforcement in these cities with egregious chronologies and histories of mis- police misconduct. I, I, the thing that stood out to me, so there's lots of uh, writing that's come up in the last couple days about why consent decrees matter. They matter because they set uh, kind of the highest standard for law enforcement. And when they, that happens, other agencies that aren't subject to a consent decree can improve their process just by watching how things unfold. There's an article in the Marshall Project about that. Uh, They are valuable because in a city like Baltimore where everybody is on board, community leaders, police, commissioners, and line officers, uh, attorneys, judges, you know, uh, all the stakeholders are in favor of a consent decree. What it can do is it can put a real priority on change. So in Baltimore, it's going to cost millions of dollars per year to improve their policing. You know, to get them out of this bad situation, they're going to have to come up with new training. They're going to have to get new resources. They're going to have to do more data collection. And that's all going to cost something. And what the consent decree does is it allows the locals to actually pursue what they want to pursue by making it a priority, you know, by putting it truly to, like, the front of the line to because improve it's, policing. It's, it's mandated. It's, it's legally mandated, and it's, and it's judicially enforceable. Here's, here's two things that stood out to me. One of the bullet points of the eight bullet points on this memo is local control and local accountability are necessary for effective local policing. It's not the responsibility of the federal government to manage non-federal law enforcement agencies. That's just a misunderstanding. I mean, there are federal laws calling for uh, uh, the Justice Department, authorizing the Justice Department to do exactly what it's doing. Right. So this is just, that's, just, that's just not correct, that right. this isn't our job, right? It's like saying if there was a, a, you know, a local government or a, that didn't require compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act, yeah. and the, compliance, the federal compliance agency said, well, that's a local issue. It's not. It, it's a, it's, we don't have uh, compliance with uh, the Civil Rights Act vary from state to state. It's a federal thing. So that's just wrong. But then calling it local power, right, that saying that this empowers localities just doesn't strike me as correct. Because when you look at a place like Baltimore, these are agreements that are negotiated at the local level with the federal government in yeah. federal court to create better local outcomes. You know, so there, there's a lot of autonomy that's actually going to be taken away. And that's why in Baltimore, there's going to be an objection or there was an objection to delaying yeah. the uh, process to start the consent decree up. And a judge denied the Justice Department's request for a continuance of three months. Right. They wanted three months to, you know, take a look at what they were doing. So, so in effect, the Justice Department was trying to stop this consent decree from, from being implemented 
by three months, and the judge said no. Because the local said, we want this thing to get started. Right. So but the Trump and, administration just keeps losing. And they just keep taking L's. Yeah. And this is the name in the name of local control. The second thing uh, that I'll just say about this memo is it has uh, bullet point number five. The misdeeds of individual bad actors should not impugn or undermine the legitimate and honorable work of law enforcement officers and agencies in keeping American communities safe. I uh, agree with that as a statement, uh, that an individual's bad action should not uh, reflect poorly on every single person. There are bad uh, public defenders. That doesn't mean that every public defender is a bad public defender, right? right. There are attorney, there are police officers who uh, commit uh, heinous uh, crimes, and that doesn't say anything about the police officers who do wonderful work, stipulated, okay? But that's not what these these uh, consent decrees aren't about individual bad actors. They're about systemic problems. So in Baltimore, 300,000 documented detentions. Mm -hmm. Those are just documented. Let's assume that, uh, let's just assume that's accurate when we know that maybe for every one detention, there are actually two or three additional ones that aren't documented, just right. contacts. Now, 300,000 documented detentions. 3.7% of those detentions where you're stopped and not free to leave result in an arrest or a citation. It's a crazy number. That's not one bad apple. Yeah. You know, that's not one misdeed of one officer. That's a systemic issue. The report also referenced a, a supervisor at the Baltimore Police Department generated a template police report for trespassing because they were doing this zero tolerance policy of just busting people who were trespassing and taking them in. You know, people being around a housing authority that they shouldn't be around, people loitering, standing on a sidewalk uh, without a legal purpose in the officer's view. And so they generated this template. The template misstated what it means to trespass. And then it also had a placeholder for, I observed a black male. You know, it actually put in the race of the individual yeah, even though it doesn't, it's not for every, you know, it's, it, it just assumes that this is for black people. Uh, and so that's not a bad apple. That's not a misdeed of one bad apple. So just to clarify that, that, that means they have a template that they essentially can just fill in with names. Like we saw black male, blank name, sitting, you know, standing on a street. And, yeah. And they I can mean, just, it's, it's just like this, it's like a Mad Libs. Yeah. They can just fill in the, the blank, you know, the black person's name because it, yeah. they just constantly contact black people. It's on page 38 of the DOJ report on Baltimore. On blank date, at, a, at approximately blank time, Officer Blank was working in a uniform capacity in the area uh, blank, which is a high drug trafficking area and an area known for violent crimes. Holy crap. Officer Doe, Officer Blank, observed a black male, not a blank male, a black male, later identified as name of suspect, Parentheses, loitering, comma, involved in narco narcotic activity, etc. In the blank, Officer Doe then approached blank and asked him why he was a asked him if he was a resident of name of housing development, public housing development, which has signs posted, quote, no trespassing, placed in a conspicuous manner throughout the development. Question whether that's even true. Blank advised Officer Doe that he was not a resident of blank. <laughs> Officer Doe then asked Blank what he was, what his reason for being on the housing property was. At this point, Blank couldn't give a valid reason. Blank was then placed under arrest and transported to CBIF for processing. Jesus. That is not a bad apple problem. You know that. So you know to say that the you know that an intervention isn't appropriate from the federal government under the civil rights law when an agency is using a template 
that has the wrong criteria for arresting people for trespass, that has a fabrication, right, of what the reasons are for the arrest just filled in, and that presumes every person detained is black. That's not an individual bad apple problem. Right. So that's my thing. Let's get systematic. Let's think structurally, and uh, and hopefully uh, this memo gets uh, reversed. Thank you so much for listening to Ader and a Better. We will talk to you next time. Thank you.